Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Welcome, Iron Radio listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I'm an exercise physiologist, and I'm a sports nutritionist, and I'm a former competitive bodybuilder. And this is Phil Stevens. I'm a coach. I run Strength Guild. I'm a powerlifter, Highland Games athlete, and dabble in a bunch of other things. Cool. This is Dr. Mike T. Nelson. I teach online. I'm a faculty member at the Kerrigan Institute on extreme human performance and work with clients primarily online and a couple in person. Sweet. All right, folks, we have a, uh, a mail this week from Nathan. Uh, he's asked a few things before, but he's got a, a good one. It's a very popular trend, I think, and I've tried to dig up a few science articles that relate it specifically to something that lifters and physique athletes would be interested in. Strength and Muscle Sport News. Um, so, let's get to this. So, Nathan says... Um, I've had some time recently to catch up with the last few weeks worth of podcasts. I wrote in and asked two questions. The first about a keto diet and HRV, and the second was about deadlifting. I'm very grateful you guys chose to answer the questions on air, and the information you shared was more than I was expecting. Uh, the answers were from multiple angles and perspectives, giving me a greater understanding of the issues that I was experiencing. Uh, thanks for the weekly shows that are always interesting and for keeping the science and evidence at the forefront of lifting and bodybuilding culture. Uh, not sure if you want to cover this one on air, but recently I started taking a probiotic supplement and it's working great for me. I don't even care if it's only a placebo effect since I'm feeling more energized and generally better off. Have you guys ever done any probiotic related discussions on the show, Nathan? Uh, the short answer is, yeah, it comes up periodically in the news. It's a, it's a real trend. Right. Years ago, I don't remember the author's name, uh, Mike, you might. But um, when they did that sort of seminal work where they took the the gut bacteria from fat rodents, and they put it in lean rodents and the lean rodents got obese, uh, you know, and it's yeah, I can't remember the author's name, but I know what you're talking about. Yeah. I mean, it's an animal model and I know people aren't animals, but rodents are sometimes a pretty good approximation. So that's why we sometimes share rat or mouse, you know, data. Um, but to Nathan's point. And you, you guys, you could chime in, of course, on any of this stuff, but I pulled a couple of brand new papers. I mean, I just thought it's random, right? And I suppose a purist, a real science purist might say, Lowry, you're, this is random. It's not co comprehensive. So you could end up with a lopsided review. Well, it's true, but I can only say this is, it is random. So it's not cherry picked and it's recent. So, you know, deal with it. <laughs> Uh, um, this first one, probiotics are a good choice in remission of inflammatory bowel disease, a meta-analysis and systematic review. This is from Journal of Cell Physiology, March right, of this year. So it starts off by saying altered gut bacteria and bacterial metabolic pathways are two important factors in initiation and the progression of inflammatory bowel disease, or IBD. Now, the reason I bring this one up is because we often have people come in, and Mike and Phil, you probably both have had people over the years say, I've got digestive problems, 
you know, my tummy's not right, you know, stuff like that. So this one is about that. So they, they looked at nine trials uh, that showed that the, the probiotics and just, uh, and Mike, you can fill in some of the edges on this one, but probiotics meaning live cultures, you know, that you would consume yep. in a pill or it's in coffee and milk products, stuff like that. Whereas prebiotics would be, you know, sort of uh, food or something that sets the stage for to grow certain populations, right, of bacteria. So um, nine trials for Crohn's said it really didn't work. Uh, no, no significant effect on Crohn's. It says, but analysis of three trials in children with irritable bowel showed that it did work. That almost suggests hmm. to me that maybe kids are more of a blank slate. You know, they haven't, they haven't quite matured their gut biome yet. You know, the bacterial populations. Uh, I just just guess. Um, it says, let's see, analysis of eighteen trials revealed that probiotics in patients with ulcerative colitis did have significant effects. And the p-value is 0 .007 for people who care. That's just very, it's a highly reliable kind of finding. So, so that suggests either there's a magnitude of effect there or at least a consistency of effect. Um, so essentially they conclude probiotics are beneficial in irritable bowel disease, especially uh, the combination ones, it says, in ulcerative colitis. If anybody remembers um, Mike Francois, I'd love to get him on the show. What a animal in the best possible way back in the day um i i saw so i'm at some events but i believe that was his problem i think he had ulcerative colitis um and that kind of ended his bodybuilding career in fact but so if you if probiotics can help with that that's that's interesting so you might want to look into that here's another one uh, i don't want to question that lonnie did they oh, say yeah. real quick uh what probiotic they used or how much no and i some of these don't even talk about um whether it's not some, you know, whether it's some kind of um, like a mix or what type. Well, yeah, or, or what kind, how they gave yeah. it to them by the by mouth. You know, sometimes they'll actually do that. Like, um, I don't know, just pipette it right down into their gut. You know, they do all kinds of stuff with, with some of these animal models. Now, that was human models, so you know, it might have been a variety. I don't know what their selection criteria, like how they pick the nine studies for this or the three studies for that. Yeah, because uh, there's what some. <clears throat> If people are interested, Sigma Tau makes a pretty good one called VSL number three. Uh, you can order it directly from them, or you can find it in actually most uh, stores now. Hmm. And it's usually 400 billion per little sachet. And sometimes in ulcerative colitis, things of that nature, they'll use, you know, four, five, six, seven, eight packets a day sometimes hmm. in people. So yeah. extremely high doses, and it's uh, a mixed variety too. So. That makes sense to me. Uh, I've listened to a couple of webinars and even Science Friday, and they would talk about, I think the average person thinks they completely rewrite the profile of bacteria that they have in their gut when they do this. And no, you really don't. No. <laughs> you know, you really don't. Uh, you influence what's there, you know. Yeah. Um, anyway, um, antihypertensive effects of, of probiotics. This is um, current hypertensive reports. Uh, again, um, this is actually ahead of print. This is for next month that's coming out. So the present review focuses on the hypertension-associated changes in the microbiota. Uh, it says gut dysbiosis, so right, having the wrong bacteria growing compared to the good guys um, in your gut, is characterized by a gut microbiome that is less diverse and less rich with an increase in, um, I hate these bacterial names, forgive me, anybody who's a microbiologist, uh, firmicutes versus bacteroidetes ratio. 
<laughs> uh, and also a decrease in acetate and butyrate producing bacteria. Uh, and uh, an unfortunate increase in lactate-producing bacterial populations. So, uh, let's see. This meta-analysis of human studies supports that supplementation with probiotics does reduce blood pressure. Hmm. They don't hmm. go on a lot of details. This is one of those abstracts. It's by Robles, Vera, and colleagues. Uh, not a ton of details in it, but again, I'm trying to offer you reviews and not just single studies about this stuff. And I don't want to assume that all, you know, off-season bodybuilders and powerlifters are bright purple with high blood pressure <laughs> because of <their> body mass <laughs> index. <laughs> but if you are, I know for for example, when I go over 215, and I know that doesn't sound a lot like to a lot of you guys, but to me that's starting to get heavier, my blood pressure does go up. I become mildly hypertensive. It's like a switch. And if I get down like under 210, gone. Uh, so I would hmm. I would think that weighing a whole lot for your height does tend to drive up your blood pressure so if you got high blood pressure they might probiotics might work uh for you and again i'm just pointing you i don't want to give you specific ones everybody's got their own you know proprietary angle and that sort of stuff the one that i mentioned in coffee for example is proprietary because they had to put it in like spores so it could survive the brewing process uh, right heat, yeah yeah uh, and this last one I found odd. This is the Journal of Pineal Research by Zhu, XU, and colleagues. Melatonin prevents obesity through modulation of gut microbiota. Uh, this is in mice. But it says, recent evidence demonstrates that gut microbiota dysbiosis, there's that word again, contributes to obesity and its co-diseases, its comorbidities. So it says however little is known about melatonin and how it's associated with gut microbiota i don't know why they would automatically even think melatonin would act through a gut bacteria mechanism but they did um, is that from uh, circadian regulation i would assume then uh presumably uh, yeah, yeah i mean it's a hormone it's yeah it's diurnal so uh, we show that melatonin reduces body weight fatty liver, and low-grade inflammation, as well as improving insulin resistance in high-fat diet-fed mice. And then um, melatonin supplementation reversed some of the problems uh, in the gut microbiome that came from that very high-fat diet. If you're listening and you're a low-carb, high-fat person, and you're like, oh, wait, that you, they act like it's bad. Researchers <laughs> often put rodents on high-fat diets to try to get some of these you know, uh, pre-diabetic states. So uh, it says... Melatonin may impact various functions, in particular through its ability to decrease the firmicutes to bacteroidetes ratio. So it looks like you want to decrease the firmicutes and increase the abundance of mucin degrading bacteria, which is associated with a healthy mucosa. Again, the lining of your intestines. Taken together, our results suggest melatonin may be used as a probiotic agent and to reverse high fat diet induced changes in the gut, you know, that could alter metabolism huh i never i would have never guessed melatonin as a uh well it wouldn't be a probiotic really i don't know yeah <clears throat> it still sounds like it's a circadian rhythm type thing although yeah. it sounds like an odd way of looking at it i guess but maybe they're just trying to find to see if something's actually there or not yeah and i guess i i first of all it, it popped right up on my searches this morning secondly a lot of lifters take melatonin or they yeah. find some way to sleep as well as they, you know, they sleep as hard as they 
stimulate <laughs> during the day, you know, <laughs> to try to balance it out. And so if it's also helping with gut bacteria, cool. We'll take it. Nice. And then uh, lastly, I just wanted to have a shout out. I don't know if you guys have any news after this, but um, uh, Jared, thank you for supporting. We have a new supporting member, Jared. Uh, I, I know we have many supporting members out there. I, I try to reach out to you periodically and put you in the show notes now. So you can scan the show notes and say, hey, look, you know, proof that I care. So uh, <laughs> thank you, Jared, for um, supporting the show. He sent a nice little email as well. So do you guys have any uh, news industry or science news going on? Uh, I just have something real quick that's probably not a shock to anyone listening to the show, but this is from uh, Brooks uh, Department of Kinesiology, Texas A&M, um, uh, overtraining, exercise, and adrenal insufficiency. And there was another one recently talking about uh, adrenal fatigue also. But the short version of uh, two of these studies is that adrenal fatigue probably isn't a real thing per se. Mm -hmm. That it, it's sort of a misnomer, right? So anyone who says, oh, I've just been kind of tired. Oh, you must have adrenal fatigue, and your adrenals just stopped working. And right. Most of the time, the adrenals aren't the ones things that stopped working. Um, in my experience, I've referred a bunch of you know clients back out to their physician, functional med docs, and I've seen everything from their sleep was horrible, so they did a sleep study and they put them on a CPAP to all sorts of different things. Um, my other comment too, I think that's interesting, is that and this article talks a little bit about it, is that if you look at you know, kind of adrenal insufficiency or adrenal fatigue, a lot of times I've seen it's just overtraining syndrome in some cases or just overreaching. You know, a lot of people, their HRV scores are horrible. You just have them do some aerobic light stuff for, you know, two, three, four, sometimes five, six weeks or longer. And a lot of times they just kind of feel better. You know, they've just kind of burnt themselves out, so to speak, from just training improperly and trying to get by on six hours of sleep and eight cups of coffee a day. So, right on. Yeah, yeah. I was, I was actually tweeting about that a while ago because it, I found a couple of papers. Just you know, I I think most people they almost think they don't understand. You're right. It's this simplistic notion that I'm so fatigued I must have no adrenaline, and yeah. you know, that's that would sort of be in a sense, Addison's disease, you know, where your, right. your adrenal glands can't make cortisol, uh, sometimes aldosterone, sometimes, uh, you know, the catecholamines. Um, no, that's, you're right. It's it's more of a receptor downreg. And you know some of the work from like Andrew Fry and whatnot. You just don't respond mm. to, to some of what you've got. So, yeah, that's, that's an ongoing thing that, a myth that needs busted in the fitness industry, I think, is this whole idea of, the simple oversimplification of adrenal fatigue. So. Yeah, and usually ask them to go, well, how did you come up with that quote-unquote diagnosis? They're like, well, I just feel tired and my performance sucks. No, oh, that could be a whole bunch of stuff. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. All right, well, let's go. To, we're going to go to break. When we come back, we're going to talk about periodic leanness uh, for different types of strength and muscle athletes, and is it worth it? Hey listeners, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry. If you've ever had anyone critique you uh, on your protein intake as part of your weightlifting lifestyle, oh you poor meathead, 
All that extra protein is going to rot your kidneys or weaken your bones or dehydrate you or give you gout or who knows what. Uh, there is a book available. You could simply Google CRC Press and Lowry. And what I've done is reach out to experts all over the world and create a book, a single compendium that you can hold up and say, this is why I consume extra protein. This can be very valuable when you're um, being quote-unquote educated uh, by various professionals on the topic. Uh, there's an enormous amount of literature in this book on the safety, uh, the effectiveness, how protein works in cells, the history of protein and weight trainers, uh, much more. So again, please check out CRC Press and Protein and Lowry. You can just Google that. And uh, I do, full disclosure, I do make a small single-digit royalty on the book. But that's not why I did it. I did it so we can all have something, uh, our particular population, uh, to both defend what we do and to inform our nutrition and our eating. Thanks. Iron Radio is, of course, primarily a podcast. But over the years, there have been technical glitches calling for backup streaming and listeners who wanted the convenience of other sources of audio content. Toward this end, Iron Radio is now simulcast and backed up on YouTube. If needed, please search Lawnman07 or Iron Radio from within YouTube. There's not much video, but if you like to listen through YouTube on a Roku or other living room device, there you go. Like your weekly fix of Iron Radio? In addition to being a popular institute on iTunes, we are also on email. Simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email. You'll get a once per week email, no more, that's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio. So go for it. <laughs> All right, we're coming back at you. It's uh, Phil, it's Dr. Mike T. Nelson, and it's Lonnie, and we're talking about periodic leanness and is it worth it. This is a time of year I think a lot of people think about leaning down. I'm doing it myself. I know Phil's been doing it over the holiday season because he's um, hardcore like that. And I'm the opposite of everybody else. Right, yeah. <laughs> I start dieting, I quit. <laughs> <laughs> so... Obviously, bodybuilders and fitness and physique athletes, they get way leaner than an average person would in, in a temporary way for a competition. But let's start with powerlifters, Phil, because you've done this before. Mm -hmm. First question, should powerlifters periodically get lean? Mm, that's a tough one. Um, it depends on where they're at. Um, like, if I got somebody starting off and, like, let's say I got a 180-pound kid. It's like, I want to be a kick-ass powerlifter. Let's say he's 186 foot tall, and he wants to eventually be really good. Um, then I'm going to be honest with him at the start and be like, well, you need to be like at minimum 242 for your frame usually, um, if not bigger at that height. I'm just looking at the – like, <sighs> sure, there's outliers, but I hate looking at outliers. So, you know, we look at the, the population. Um look at who usually does well and if you're six foot tall you're usually that size or bigger um 
So, no, they're not going to for a while. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's no point in going backwards. Like, if you tell me I want to be jacked at 275 and you're 180 and you're leaning out, I'm like, what the hell are you doing? That's stupid. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) We need to get to, like, 300 and then come back down. Um, (laughs) But, you know, when you're talking about somebody who's already more elite and things like that, um, walking around 275, 280, you know, whatever. um, Yeah, I think it's good to have times especially in off season and things like that, where you tighten up the diet and, uh, you know, just, just work things out for a little while. Take a break from the hard training. Um, give your whole body a rest from just cramming food in all yeah, the time. Because a lot of times feeding. when you're that size of a human, you're not exactly cramming in the healthiest varieties of <laughs> that weight on. Right. So I think it's smart to do a reset from time to time for like three months or so. And, you know, let's eat healthy. Let's, Let's control our blood sugar. Let's do things like that. And that's what I like doing. I mean, like, I'll go lower carb for a quarter, you know, or something like that. And let my body get a break from constantly having, you know, jacked up insulin levels and, you know, walking around with high blood pressure and, mm-hmm. you know, having to wear a CPAP. And, you know, <laughs> yeah. the CPAP become like the, it's the standard handout for heavyweight powerlifters now. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. <clears throat> Um, yeah. So, I mean, at that level, I think it's good. I think early on, I think too many people get on that boat, especially as strength athletes of, of leaning out when they don't need to. Um, like I talked about at the beginning, like if if you're 175, 180 and you're looking to be big, it's like, why are you going backwards? Um, good point. You know, when I, when I first had this question sort of posed to me, um, I think what we need to do is really ask how periodic, right? I guess my default, again, maybe it's that bodybuilder mentality that when I hear periodic, I mean, once a year, every other year, are you going to strip off some body fat and see what you look like, you know, what the muscles look like underneath. But it's a good point, Phil, because you've mentioned that in the past. You get you get beginner and intermediate guys, and they yo-yo we, almost over just a few weeks. Like they try to get big for a few yeah. weeks, and then they try to get lean for a few weeks. It's like, wait a minute. Yeah. Uh, who was it? Was it Dave Tate? He likes like the full one year blocks uh, when yeah. you periodize. Because, yeah, you talked about like getting up to 300. You know, hey, kids, you're not going to do that this year. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's going to take a, you know, a decade. A there that just need to spend five years getting bigger. <laughs> right. right. Uh, so, yeah. So, how periodic, I guess we should probably define that too. Right? Like what I just did, I mean, it's been years since I did something like this. And, you know, one of the main reasons I did it is injuries and everything else. So, you know, I just went through two major surgeries and it's like, you know, I needed to back off, figure out the numerous things. You know, it's not a bad idea to lean out, but I need to figure out how, how can I train now? I'm a totally different person than I was before. Um, so take some time, figure that out. It's like, it's stupid of me to try and push forward and keep my weight at 275 when I don't even know how to train right now. Um, you know, I'm just learning that, um, sure. you know, knowing what that my hip, my hamstring can handle, yeah, yeah. Uh, and things like that. So I've leaned down, I, I've dropped about 15 pounds now. I'm around 200 pounds. Oh my God. I'm going to go under 200 pounds <laughs> toe wink. But you know what? It's amazing to me. Once you get your body weight set point, like my body really likes to weigh about 210 to 215, but I kind of noticed last year that having not competed since 2011, it's been that long now, but wow. I, and I'm, I'm thinking I better lean down because I still weigh the same, but my body composition isn't where I wanted it. You know, my joints won't allow me to lift as heavy as I was. 
And so it's funny, like, to me, it seems like something about your, the hypothalamic regulation of this, um, it, at least with me, it seems to care more about just pounds of weight, you know, kilograms of absolute body weight than anything else, because my body composition really was not good like it was when I was off season right before I competed last time. You know what I mean? Like my body, both times I'm, you know, weighing, let's say 215, 220, something like that. But I, I, I just felt like for my health, I had to get some get some body fat off me. Sometimes it just, I don't know, it's like a feeling, you know, but, um, but Mike, I'm sure you have lots of thoughts about this, about health or um, metabolism, uh, how often someone would get lean. What are your thoughts on this stuff? Yeah, I think, and the clients I work with too, we look at it in terms of sometimes an open time frame. So I'll pick, you know, where they want to go in terms of um, maybe body weight or body composition. And then do they still want to keep a fair amount of strength along the way and sort of the time course. So I had a female client I worked with who's done really well. Um, she's lost about 20 pounds over the last, took us about a year. And she wasn't, you know, she's pretty lean to start with and she's not competition lean now, but she's significantly leaner than what she was before and during that time because it was you know pretty slow and steady she's also increased strength in pretty much every exercise too you know because her priority was she didn't really want to have her performance drop super far down you know in the process and again you're trying to make it you know semi livable and at the end it was you know pretty you know not sustainable but that wasn't the point um so i think like phil said the longer periods of time i think are better um, with guys or what I do with myself is I'll look at a period of sometimes six months to a year and I'll have kind of a rough, you know, end point. So a couple of years ago, my goal was we're doing more overhead pressing, more, you know, strong man did a novice competition. So I got up to as high as like 245, which yeah, a lot of that was fat, you know, but my lists were still going up. And then towards the end from like 240 to 245, my lifts didn't really go up at all. I was just getting fatter. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> so right. I'm like, yeah. that's probably about max, right? So I tried to, you know, stay around that point for a couple months, which is kind of hard, right? Because your gut instinct is like, oh, my God, I want to go back the other way like today. Um, and then as I come down, I'll notice that I'll kind of just kind of run into sort of natural plateaus, right? So 235 was, you know, pretty good for quite a while. Everything was good. You know, recently I've gotten down to like 227. Um, and that's been pretty easy, you know, to hold with not much effort. So I'll probably, you know, go back down again from there. So I think kind of <clears throat> allowing your body sort of those natural plateaus along the way, because at the end of the day, you want to get to a point where you're just at a lower body fat percent, but you actually do want to be at a plateau. I think it was Alan Aragon who said that once to me years ago, because at that point, it's easier to maintain where you're at. Um, especially, I think, if you're doing it more for, you know, lifestyle and health and it's not like you have to step on stage on a particular, you know, day of the month or time coming up. Yeah, I th honestly, I think that's that's a good segue. It's almost like we plan this <laughs> because <laughs> because the gen pop, I think there's a lot of warnings like you'll hear from dietitians or nurses or different health and people, you know, in, in health care and education that they'll say yo-yo dieting is bad. I think most listeners would Con, you have a connotation, negative connotation with yo-yo dieting and because there, there are different risks involved. I mean, I've got some sort of basic textbook slides that say, 
you know, the risk with this would be each subsequent diet that you go on, if it's if it's done badly, right? The general population just they try to cut their calories too far. They don't necessarily bump up their protein or anything like that. They just stop eating kind of. Um, and then when they regain, more of it comes back as fat. You know, they might end up with some kind of weird uh, hypothyroid state, you know, whether it's temporary or not. Um, one of the concerns on a tissue level, I remember listening to, um, oh, was it Vic Catch? Uh, there was a talk about at a conference, and they were talking about how when you periodically regain, uh, and again, not a, not a wise refeed, but just gross, you know, starve and then regain, starve and then regain. They were showing some very disappointing or like dismal data, uh, you know, depressing is the word I'm looking for, <laughs> of, of uh, women, longitudinal data on a group of women and how they would take tissue samples and they would show that the preadipocytes, right, the, the fat cells, that they're not really full functioning fat storing cells yet. They tend to wake up, if you will, and differentiate and become fully fat storing adult fat cells with these awkward refeeds. So, and at some point, their body fat gets so high after, you know, for, like the first diet, they lose eight pounds and gain back 12. The second diet, they lose six pounds and gain back 15. You know, the third diet, they lose four pounds and gain back 20. And by the time, and there, this is real data, you know, these are real data that I was looking at. And like two decades later, later, these poor subjects are just a train wreck, you know? And then I, I think most people don't realize once, once obesity gets high enough, a lot of inflammatory processes take over. There's a lot of like macrophages and inflammatory cells embedded in the fat tissue. And a lot of people don't realize that the super obese, their body fat, their adipose tissue, it doesn't look like the fat tissue of a, of a leaner person. But anyway, so there's a lot of these risks with this random yo-yo dieting stuff. But let me ask Phil and then Mike, I know you've got thoughts on this too. Do we fit that mold? Are we like the gen pop? I mean, let's face it. The kind of weight fluctuation that you talk about probably stuns people, Phil. And so can we get away with that? Are we doing something different or better that we can get away with it? I think so. I mean, I think a lot of it is it's a little more thought out and it's a little longer term. But a lot of my crazy weight shifts are literally water. Fluids, And yeah. people forget that. You know, it's just it's literally just fluid. Um like I don't, I can't tell you how many mainly women have been like, oh, I wish I could lose seventeen pounds in twenty four hours. Yeah, but I gained twenty three back the next twenty four. <laughs> <hours. laughs> you know? Yeah, that's water. So, yeah. you know, it was all on purpose, and it's not like I would die if I stayed down there. Um, but I mean, I think the other thing people need to look at too is just the, the amount of time. If you're training hard, that's like when I, I started competing in powerlifting after I was done with strongman at two forty two, and. I stayed there for a few years, and then it was like, okay, it's time to go to 275. It literally took me seven years mm. to go from – to weigh in at a legitimate 275 for yeah. me. Yeah. And that was cramming. I mean, I'm cramming food, but I, the, the training is so hard and the, the energy demand. It just – you know, and I'm not saying I was eating Brock. I wasn't eating all clean foods. It just takes that much time at a certain point to – you put on that weight if you're legitimately training hard, and that's where a lot of people that's where a lot of people miss the boat. Um, I think they're like, yeah, it's easy to get up to you know I've been 320 pounds not trained. That's a lot easier than 300 pounds trained. Right. You know when you're legitimately busting your butt in the gym and and adding on adding on weight is tough. So yeah, there's got to be a stimulus. Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, you can't ignore. Th 
the demand we put on our body and how it changes the uh you know the weight we're gaining right the, the partitioning of nutrients into muscle yeah, mass yeah it just it totally it, it's a game changer you know when you're like Windler's talked about it a bunch uh yeah you can out train a shitty diet there's a there's hundreds of NFL players and major league athletes that do it mm-hmm. they train really goddamn hard yeah you know? right so and the general population is not willing to do that so right what about you Mike can we get away with it? What are some of the, you know, are, are all those yo-yo diet health risks? I mean, honestly, some of them I think might be overblown. Uh, I, I was looking at, there's an interesting page on the Office of Dietary Supplements, ODS.gov, and they were talking about uh, subsequent dieting. And they their conclusion and their education for the public was it's not really as bad as a lot of books make it sound. Uh, you know, they were, in other words, they were suggesting you, you might as well try and lose some weight every once in a while and not worry about it. And I, I found that interesting because, again, it kind of goes contrary to some of the textbooks. But you're an educated dude. What do you think? Yeah, I think if I look at the the general population, the two big things are that they generally don't train as much or sometimes at, at all, all. Yeah, um, which is why in marketing advice, I got the advice once to write a nutrition book, not a training book because everyone has to eat. Not everyone wants to train. (laughs) I was like, Oh, that's right. There's a whole general population that just, you know, unfortunately doesn't train that much or at all. Yep. Um, yep. And and we know from studies, right. And Phil was on the cover of this book and you helped edit it, Lonnie from low protein intake. If you dramatically slash your calories the next day, They've compared uh, the high-protein group to the low-protein group. Uh, Miro's done this. Layman's done this. Stu Phillips Lab's done one of them. And what you see is that if your protein is low, you will lose lean body mass. Um, and again, these are not subjects who are hard trainers, but you know, recreationally you know, active. So I think most of the general population I've seen, they're like, okay, Monday's time to diet because everyone bench presses on Monday and starts their diet on Monday. And then they don't really increase their protein at all. They were eating like a bagel and orange juice for breakfast. So now it's just black coffee or something, right? So I think their protein tends to be pretty low. So I think lifters can get away with it because, you know, protein's higher. Like Phil said, they're training. So training's going to, you know, work to add lean body mass, which is an excruciatingly slow process. You know, maybe one to half a pound a month if you're doing yeah. really really well spoken so, you know what that's spoken like a man who's tried it himself <laughs> yeah <laughs> i can attest to Excruciating. this <laughs> god dang it come on muscle mass <laughs> oh yeah and the other part too is that i think you're turning over a lot of those tissues and substrates right so you're burning through glycogen we know that uh locally stored adipose tissue right so intramuscular triglycerides if you look at a population that does not train, they totally mess up, you know, insulin levels, the muscle, all that kind of stuff. However, in athletes, they do not, right? And the theory is because the fats there are burned and stored again, so they have a different effect. Even though if we take a snapshot of the muscle, they look very similar. So I think to some degree, um, lifters and people doing that can get away with it. And what I've seen is that they generally, although like what Phil was saying, it seems extreme. But if you throw out the meeting competition and, you know, fluid changes, for the most part, they're really not that extreme. Right. And you know this, Lonnie, like looking at even natural physique competitors, you know, a lot of the guys and gals I know and a couple I've worked with, 
they take months and months to get down to that level of leanness. You know, it's not like it happens in a couple of weeks. So even in the extreme case, we're talking, you know, several months too. Yeah. Right. No, right on. It, now, there is a caveat to some of this that some of our listeners would be like, well, what about the people who they get so lean and, you know, they're using performance enhancing drugs and things like that. I have seen some people in our population screw themselves up pretty good, right? So oh, they're sure. abusing thyroid growth hormone. There was one guy, and I'm going to withhold his name, great guy. Actually, he was he's one of those guys, anytime somebody talks about everybody who uses performance-enhancing drugs or criminals or bad people, this guy was a family man. He took his, his kids up on stage when he, he won a big event, stuff like that. And, uh, and again, I'm not going to try to defend or, or condone anything, but um, – very open backstage talking about the growth hormone and the thyroid use and abuse and the clenbuterol and so many things. I And this guy, he's the actually the leanest person I've ever seen up close. Like uh, a buddy of mine actually said, can I touch your forearm? I've never seen anything like that. Like I don't, don't think that I'm like, you know, coming on to you or something, but your skin looks like pink cellophane. Oh my God. And uh, a, a year to two years later, uh, just through sort of the community, there was a lot of discussion about how obese he was. He was just just metabolically broken, you know. And I don't know mm. if he, he quit everything cold turkey. I don't know if he then pulled himself back out of it. But this did not look like a traditional get like get lean and put the fat back on in a healthy way kind of, you know, fluctuation. And I hear that with mm. uh, female f- fitness and figure competitors, too. You know, sometimes well, permanent thyroid suppression or something like that, I guess. I don't know. You see that in athletes, too, though. You see a lot of, let's say, uh, let's take the NFL, for example. Oddly enough, you'll see a lot of linemen that come out and get lean. And then you see a lot of other people that come out and get big. Yeah, do the reverse. Over, over fat. The linemen have spent the last 25 years of their life being told, you need to shovel food in your face. Mm-hmm. It's your job. You know? So they, what do they do? They get done and they're like, I don't have to fucking eat 10 cows anymore. <laughs> right so they lean out it's a relief and then the other people they keep eating what they were eating but they're not training how they were training you know right yeah and they end up overweight i mean and that's one thing i mean i know that i can't do what i do forever um and i know at some point i'm gonna get smaller and leaner you know and i'm gonna have to change my diet and eat for health and that's one thing that where people miss the boat as far as athletics go and I've preached it over and over. It has nothing to do with health. It really doesn't. Elite athletics, there's nothing. They they don't go hand in hand. I'm sure there's some in there, but I mean, right. at some point, if you want to be elite, you throw out the health aspect. It's, it's too not extreme. Number one. Yeah, it's too it's, extreme. It's trying to do it as healthfully as possible, of course, but it's not the number one goal. Performance is the goal. So health is going to suffer. Joint health, general health. So. Right, um, yeah, a lot of my students point, think, need to know that. They need to hear that, right? A lot of my students. Yeah, I think they, a lot of people retire and then they don't. They don't then go to a more regular lifestyle, as far as mm-hmm. eating and everything else. You know, when your training drops off, well, the probably eating needs to as well. Right. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah, I think a lot of young people they need to understand that idea that in a very elite way, it, it's not about maximum longevity. That, like you said, that's not the goal. You know. No. But. Um, just a final point, I guess, that I had jotted down about the leanness, periodic leanness. I think another um, benefit maybe to it is motivation. 
Uh, like Mike said, everybody eats, right? So you can just like you can force feed and have fun with it because you're training your butt off and you're making gains at some point. And I'm kind of there, you know, everybody. I'm I lifting heavy is not really in my joints anymore. I, I that sounds disappointing, but. I, I've got. I'm changing kind of how I'm going about this, but part of what, the reason that I've been leaning down is it's something I can still do. You know, it's oh, a, yeah. it's a motivation. So whether you're dieting for a competition or you're force feeding, and you're right, Phil. I mean, we all know how that gets old. I mean, when I got up near two thirty, that doesn't sound like a lot to you guys, but that wasn't fun. After some, after a couple of weeks, that's not fun anymore. You know, the shoveling yeah. uh, brownies and stuff like that. <laughs> you know, but. I do think there's a motivational aspect because you have to eat multiple times a day and you're, it, it becomes more, it helps the diet stuff helps make it a lifestyle instead of just oh, yeah. sort of, uh, like you said, some of the athletes who just, they just eat like slobs and the training's just about the being on the field, you know? Oh uh, yeah. And I agree. I won't lie. A big, a big reason for the, the weight loss I did was to prove I could still do it. You know, it'd been more than a dozen years. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And it was just, here, watch, I'm going to prove to you and myself, mainly myself, that I can still do this. And then it's like, okay, now I don't have to do it for another 10 years. So <laughs> It's true. Absolutely. So, Absolutely. I, when I competed yeah. last, it was mostly that. I'm like, I'm 43. I just want to prove that I know how to do, you know, that what I yeah. think I know, I can actually yeah. do in a real world setting. Mm -hmm. You know? Absolutely. Like so. Taking the car out and doing the old test drive on the track once in a while, yeah. making sure it yep. still works. <laughs> yeah, and it's psychological. It's a psych test too. It's not just a, yeah. a biological test. Yeah. It's a courage test for me. You know, can yeah. I? Now, at some point, you know, at least in bodybuilding, your skin quality goes. And I'm not one of the people. I don't want to necessarily, and I don't want to offend anybody who does this, but I don't want to be on stage in my late 50s and 60s, and even when I'm lean, um, you know, you're just kind of wrinkly and saggy around the edges a little bit. Now, I, I just I don't want that for me. Some people can look great, I, I imagine, and, the, and still want to do that, but probably not not for me. So that's a different that's a different story. But yeah, the courage test and the, the prove to myself, like Phil was saying, you know, yeah, that's a big factor. I think of getting lean occasionally, you know. Okay, well that's cool. all I've got. Yeah, I've got you guys know I've got an afternoon, a long afternoon of running some hormone assays. So. I'm going to have to jet. I know Phil's got to open the gym or uh, and or lift both. <laughs> so um, I guess we'll uh, we'll catch up with everyone next week. Thanks a lot, guys. Hey, listeners. Have you seen the store at ironradio.org? There are three halls in the store, one for Phil, one for Fortress, and one for myself, Dr. Lowry, and they're thematic. So you can go into our Halls of Iron store and choose based on your goal. If you need something to learn or read or something nutritional, you can look in my store, uh, Lonnie's store. If you want something about injury prevention uh, or competition, then take a look at Phil's Hall of Iron. And if you want something about motivation or daily training, Fortress's Hall has what you're looking for. There are some fun heroic descriptors uh, as you browse through the stores. We try to make it a little more fun than the average boring online store. And whether you're a novice lifter or someone more experienced, you can take heart that you're not wasting your time. The things that we 
put in each hall of iron are actually based on our own recommendations. Protein powders that we know to be good, uh, knee sleeves, wraps of some kind, things that Fortress uses in his own training. Uh, the stuff you, you see, you know is good. This way you don't waste time. So check out the Iron Radio store at ironradio.org and um, let us know what you think on the forums and certainly you can request products and we will uh, screen them before they go in. So thanks for listening. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding, um, please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org uh, store. Uh, we also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. The Iron Radio Podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.